0: Hello, Mia here, the founder of Taboo and host of this podcast, Asking For Myself, where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. Today's conversation is an important one, and I hope you'll stick around whether or not you have a herpes diagnosis. Chances are, even if you don't, you have a loved one who does. There's always so much we can learn from others' experiences, regardless of if they mimic our own. I wanted to do this episode because herpes is far too stigmatized. It's at the butt of many jokes and some people's worst fear, nightmare even. Yet herpes is one of the most common STIs and generally doesn't cause any serious health problems. This fear of herpes is ingrained in us and I wanted to explore where it comes from and how we can collectively smash the stigma to make life easier for individuals living with herpes. While the virus manifests itself physically, it's the emotional toll that we actually need to be worried about. I had the great fortune of sitting down with Courtney brain the founder and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People, a safe space for people living with a positive herpes or STI diagnosis. This conversation is as much about herpes as it is about mental health and compassion. That being said, we do discuss suicide. If that is something you are sensitive to or triggered by please proceed with caution. I will include resources for those struggling with mental health or contemplating suicide in the episode description and show notes. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. No matter what it is you're going through, please know you're not alone. Without further ado, let's talk taboo. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Um, Do you just want to start off by introducing yourself and a little bit about your work?
1: Yeah, so my name is Courtney Brame. I am the founder, executive director, and podcast host of Something Positive for Positive People. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially is raising money to pay for people who are struggling with herpes stigma to get mental health services. Um, Right now we've got group therapy as well as individual therapy. I'm only working with a couple of therapists right now simply because it's really hard to screen people in and find people. But it's expanding and then it's just me. So um, <laughs> while that right now is the priority, there's also a weekly podcast interviewing people who are living with herpes about their experiences and anything that kind of intersects there between interviewing uh, health care professionals, mental health professionals, other sex positivity advocates in the world and general information specifically around whatever it is that people who are living with herpes are looking for. I started Something Positive for Positive People four years ago, and it was just a podcast. Uh, It began with me interviewing people who were living with herpes and sharing these conversations, specifically with people who had expressed that they wanted to kill themselves after their diagnosis. So after having done that a few times and reached out to people about what I was doing, more and more people wanted to get involved. And it really expanded into, um, while it started as a suicide prevention resource, a tool for people who are living with genital herpes to navigate their experiences from their diagnosis to disclosure. Um, I ran the Instagram page, Twitter handle, uh, what's the other one, Tumblr, and Reddit as at uh, H on my chest. A lot of people think it's hoeing my chest. And I'm like, uh, maybe I should have put little uh, uh, like spaces in between so people can get it. But uh, yeah, that, that sums up everything about uh, at least me in the context of this podcast episode.
0: That's amazing. So you're doing a lot of incredible work and it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. Um, So thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. A theme of this podcast and the name is like asking for myself. So a lot of this is, you know, asking the questions that people have and asking the questions that I've had over the years. And obviously, since I've started Taboo, I've learned a lot. But I think that I want to approach this conversation from a place of like, People who really may be at the baseline of having no, no, having not had these conversations before, having not having the proper language to talk about things and really just hope to bring people on this journey through education and also and also just, I guess, kind of talking about this all collectively as a society. So in starting your podcast, it sounds like a lot of that was driven from the mental health aspect of a herpes diagnosis. And I think that's something that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about. So can you talk about like, what, how did was this a problem you were seeing? Is this based on the experience that you had um, in your own diagnosis? Like, how did you realize that that this was such an important and necessary conversation, um, ongoing conversation to be having?
1: Thank you for that question. And for that observation as well. I think a lot of people get hung up on the fact that I'm a black cisgender heterosexual man living with herpes that a lot of the conversation doesn't really go into the whole aspect of this actually starting because of the fact that people with herpes wanted to kill themselves. So I really appreciate that question. And so it was more about the experiences of people around me. So I've, after being in therapy, looked back and I realized instances that I had with people around me, uh, having expressed suicide ideation or even attempted. Um, I would be considered a survivor of suicide. People around me have taken their own lives, not necessarily direct me directly around me, but like um, I had a step aunt, I had. Um, a former high school football teammate that ended their lives. And I had an ex-girlfriend who I ended up actually calling the Suicide Lifeline. And they found her before uh, they called her early after having taken some pills in the bathtub. And um, I didn't know really what happened much after that outside of her brother calling me and saying that she was OK and how they found her. But I think that these instances kind of just festered in me to have the response that I had when I got into all of these different communities of people who are living with herpes. And I got to see that people with herpes are just normal people dealing with normal problems. It's just that now there's this conversation, very uncomfortable conversation that needs to be had in the event that you're going to be intimate with someone. So being there for myself, I discovered this space of different Communities of people with herpes for dating, socializing, support. And when I got there, like it felt like all my troubles went away because the main issue that I had with socializing and dating was this thought that was always in the back of my head of, I'm going to have to tell this person I have herpes or trying to keep them from finding out that I have herpes. So when I got there and I saw that people were openly saying that they wanted to kill themselves that no one would love them no one was going to be with them they'd never be able to find a partner and that they were going to end it all i saw it a few times and didn't really think much of it it was when someone that i had become friends with who was in a relationship who was in their career they opened up to me and said that they too had thought about ending their lives as well and at that point i was just like you know who else Like, it's not just people who have herpes who feel like they aren't going to be able to find a partner who are wanting to kill themselves. It's people, period. And it expanded beyond just the whole feeling alone or feeling like they aren't going to be able to find a partner. And as I had more and more conversations with people about this topic or um, about herpes, it really began to shock me just how deep the mental health aspect uh, really reached. I did a uh, I did a survey of podcast listeners, people who listen to something positive for positive people who uh, have herpes, and 110 people. It, the survey capped out at 110 people, but 99% of these people expressed that they had experienced depression after their diagnosis, and there were a couple of other questions that I came up with. But 6% of them had said that they attempted suicide. And I know 6% isn't really a big number. But when you put the focus on the act, you know, the act of going through with making an attempt to end your own life, like that's a really, really big deal, you know. And so I think that it was a combination of things that really inspired me to take this intense approach, I would say, uh, as a response to Serving as a suicide prevention resource, I would say, because initially when I started to engage with people who were saying that they were considering ending their lives, I know that I couldn't relate to them. I can't speak to a 22-year-old white woman the same way that I can speak to a 48-year-old Hispanic man the same way that I would talk to a 30-year-old black woman. So these are all different perspectives. So when I say, hey, it's not that bad or it's going to be all right, which I've later learned are some of the worst things that you can say to someone who is contemplating suicide, it, it became really important to me to... Get the experiences of everyday people who are living with the herpes virus to share as much of their experience as they were comfortable with in a safe way for them so that no one else had to feel like this was their option. So as I began to talk to more people, I think that I've been able to give people more choices in how they choose to navigate the stigma so that they don't feel like uh, ending their life is the only way out.
0: Wow, that's very, very powerful work that you're doing. And I can only imagine how this has both in positive and uplifting and validating ways been for you, but also have like holding space for all of these individuals and all of these really heavy conversations and traumatic experiences and thoughts. I think that that must be a lot for you to listen to and also to support. And maybe I don't know, do you have like, how has that been for you? And maybe over time, it's become more normal and comfortable. But in terms of like, I think that suicide is something that a lot of people don't know how to talk about mental health more broadly is something a lot of people don't know how to talk about. How did you learn to kind of have and navigate those conversations and, and also protect your own mental health in, in having those conversations? Because obviously, and having experiences, like, how do you, how do you handle all of that?
1: I think that it's a combination of things. Uh, I had such a, I, I feel like my response to suicide has been one out of anger just because of how uh, growing up, I've had family members use that as almost a threat. Uh, I'm going to leave and never come back by killing myself if you don't dot, dot, dot. And so I, I guess I have like this anger response to it. And then having to do something with that anger led to the creation of the project. And I think that having had it maybe at such a young age, perhaps this was some sort of like, I like to think of it as a superpower. Like I've watched a lot of cartoons and I see that, uh, the consistent thing is that a trauma ends up turning into the main character's superpower or supervillain. Right. Um, and that event is essentially what allows for them to use their power. So being able to, handle the emotional offloading, the taking in of other people's trauma, because an STI diagnosis can be, and I will argue often always is, in fact, a traumatic event. Being able to navigate these discussions was just something that kind of developed along with the use of this, quote, superpower. So as I talked to more people, as I went through the process of editing these podcasts, listening to people, taking the notes and marketing and sharing it, and taking the information and trying to put it in places that it can best serve the community and even the the secondary communities that fall under this... I think that that's kind of how I learned to talk about it. It was something that was very self-taught because early on, I didn't really have language around uh, not just sexual health and dealing with the herpes diagnosis, not just mental health, but even suicide. You know, For this to have been something that was happening around me, it was just kind of the only thing that I knew about suicide. And this is as a result of having grown up um, in a Christian household, was that if you kill yourself, you go to hell. And that really like that's it. You know, there is so much more complexity around suicide, around mental health that just wasn't discussed in my household and I didn't learn about in school. Like we've had to deal with suicides in high school and there was really no way to talk about that. They just sent a letter home. I guess maybe that letter was instructing our parents about what happened and perhaps. Uh, giving them something to say to us or some sort of resource on how to talk to us. But I don't remember any of that having happened. So this has been 100 percent something that I've been self-taught, like I've just been self-educating myself on how to navigate these discussions. And really, I believe what it comes down to is just being able to have compassion and be willing to listen and hold space. And whether or not it's taking a toll on my mental health, I don't know. But I became aware through following uh, social media accounts that talk about mental health. I learned about burnout. Like I didn't even know that this was a thing that existed or compassion fatigue. So in 2020, um, I was fortunately blessed with an opportunity to see a therapist. And when my therapist asked, why are you here? That's what I said. I was like, hey, I want to prepare for, avoid, whatever, compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And I described to my therapist uh, what I do through something positive for positive people and the social media accounts. And what's wild is the first thing that my therapist said was that he didn't think that I had worked on my own diagnosis or processed that. But that's a whole nother conversation. Throughout this whole process of just being engaged and just following this visceral, like, pull from the universe to talk to people about their experiences and share the information and I guess serve this community it's just been something that I never thought about up until uh, along the way like along the way was when I realized okay I'm caring for a lot of other people there's this word that I never heard of compassion fatigue let me prepare for myself so that I can continue to be here and be supportive to people because I I enjoy it. And I don't know if perhaps this is a trauma response. Like I feel as if maybe I've recreated an environment that allows for me to be, in adulthood, what I needed to be as a child or throughout those traumatic experiences, which was just essentially there for other people. And I have my places that I go in order to get myself taken care of because I think everyone who is there for somebody or there for others also needs to have someone or a team of people even who are there for them when they need them. So I've, I've, I think that I've done a pretty good job of managing it so far and being able to take care of myself in the process.
0: Is the H on my chest, does that represent sort of like you were saying with the super ho- superpower ability? Is that um, emblematic of that? Or is it more of the scarlet letter A? Like, or is it both?
1: Ah, so it's, what's interesting is I played around with this uh, very recently because I asked people, you know, what do you think the H stands for? And obviously most people who follow me are going to assume that it stands for herpes, but that's not all H on my chest is representative of when I talk to people who may be down, it's my goal to hype them up. So I can say that that serves as a place of being able to get hyped up. You know, I'm, I'm everybody's hype man. You know, if you come to me feeling down because someone you disclose to isn't, you know, um, It wasn't receptive. I'm going to hype you up and tell you just how amazing you are. I mean, based on what I know, given uh, most of the interaction is just looking through people's social media pages. But I try to do a good job of um, communicating with anyone who reaches out so that we can build some kind of rapport. I feel like a lot of what I do is relationship management. It is community building because I want people to feel safe enough to be able to step into and be embraced by this amazing community that I've come to find for myself and be a part of. Another H that I think that it stands for is um, it, it stands for hope. I think that having this kind of a resource where you can hear from so many different people, where you can get healing from if you need to, where you can educate yourself, find community and empower yourself. I think that it gives people a little bit of hope in being able to navigate their own diagnosis in the way that works best for them. So I try to offer people choices. I try to give people a bunch of different options for how they can take the next step in their own healing process. And while we're on that age where uh, I think that what it really stands for is healing, because this is a space for healing where you can come and get whatever it is that you think you need and then discover that there may be a whole new need that you had that you were completely unaware of having become a nonprofit uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization I'm able to accept donations and use the money that we're earning in order to pay for people to get therapy and therapy. I got it in 2020. I don't know what 2020 would have looked like for me had I not had a therapist all year. And I'll be completely transparent about that. Um, There were times where I thought, okay, maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else. I thought I was going to have to like get a regular job and then have all of these other things going on. But Somehow, some way through my healing myself in therapy and taking care of what it is that I have going on in order to maintain the momentum that I have in up keeping something positive for positive people, I think that a lot of people have been able to come through here and experience healing. I hope that people come, they get what they need, and that they don't have to linger around. If people want to continue to listen to the podcast, and yay, that's awesome, but I don't think people should be so strung up on consuming herpes content or Uh, suicide prevention content nonstop 24 hours down the newsfeed that just flat out isn't healthy. I hope people can come be here and get enough healing to at least get to a place of self-acceptance Or at least just not be in such a dark place and feel alone, and then be able to go off and explore their own identities and what the world is going to look like for them and have their own experiences for themselves. So summed up, I think that the H really stands for healing, but it's subjective. I'm biased. When I first started Something Positive for Positive People, I know I said in the first episode that no one will ever hear because this was terrible. I was in my car, I hit record, and I just started talking. And I remember I said I wanted to make something positive for positive people. And that's where the name came from. And I remember just feeling like I wouldn't have a problem with wearing that H on my chest, H at that point in time being herpes. But it's evolved throughout time. And over the experiences that I've had, it's become representative of a handful of other (laughs) H words. But the one that sticks with me the most right now is healing.
0: I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this almost duality of people and once they've received a diagnosis, that that doesn't need to become all consuming. That doesn't need to be their entire life. Dating is just like dating. Living is just like living. There's so many other aspects of your identity and experience as a human being that make up your life beyond just a herpes diagnosis or any STI diagnosis or really any a experience or traumatic experience. And then at the same time, it's become the foundation of your work, right? In an all-consuming way. And the same for me. And I think it's really interesting what your therapist said, not that we need to dig into that. And this, and also just the idea of like compassion fatigue and sort of what you mentioned as well about trauma experiences informing. I think a lot of people in this field, I think a lot of their work stems from their own experiences. And that's why they're so passionate. They want to be, they want other people to prevent or to not go through what they went through. I know for me, that's very much why I started Taboo was trying to be that resource for people who were like the younger versions of myself. And so I think it's just, I just think it's really interesting to hear from you and and kind of talking about, oh, sorry, there's like this knocking in the background. I think they're doing construction upstairs or something, but um, to talk about people and how uh, they shouldn't necessarily let this consume their entire lives, but how you've been able to embrace this as a superpower and take that on. I guess you don't have to respond to that, but I just thought that's really interesting.
1: Oh, no. So, yeah, that's actually something that I would like to touch on. I've been in this space publicly for four years now. I started the podcast four years ago and the nonprofit itself is about two years old. It'll be two years old in May. And so when I started doing this, it was very blind. Like I I wasn't intentional about what I was doing. I was just going and you know, I look up three years into podcasting and talk to my therapist and he's like, yeah, I don't think you've dealt with your own diagnosis. Right. I've seen that a lot. Now that I think about it, I've seen a lot of people that I've spoken to over the years. Um, If you listen to any of maybe the first 50 ish episodes, there's a number of people who I interviewed who were open about their diagnosis, who offered support, who created different social media pages and handles to serve as support. But they would create them be there and then just kind of disappear on people. And that's even something that's wildly triggering for me is just that inconsistency of now I know everyone moves on. That's one thing. But to come in so passionately and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be here for you, I want everybody to dot, 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 and then I look up and all of your stuff's deleted because, let's say, you found a significant other, and that may have been unintentionally what your plan was, but I've seen a number of groups just go away and find out from people that You know, There's a direct correlation, not to say that this is exactly what it is, but it's almost like people stepping into the space and then kind of milking their audience, their branding or whatever for what it is, and then they've moved on and just disappeared completely from these people that they've offered so much support to. I have never wanted to be that kind of person, and I feel like I want to offer more than just my own healing in this, like, I'm, I don't want to look at this as like, my advocacy is my way of coping with my diagnosis, because I, I do believe that maybe that's what it was in the beginning. But now I recognize that this is something that like, I'm actively healing, but I'm also attempting to provide actual tangible resources to people that will be here long after I'm gone, um, by simply equipping doctors, medical staff with resources that they can give people after a herpes diagnosis that are going to aid in their mental health by serving as an investigative journalist on mental health and SCI stigma as they are arguably the same thing. Like when we talk about mental health, the same way that we don't talk about sex and sexual health is the exact same way that we do talk about mental health. And I think that we can even go into like how our sex education omits very, very valuable pieces of mental health, of mental health information, just as a result or as a, um, it's as a result of wanting to keep kids or youth from engaging in sexual acts. I look back at my own sex education and it was just kind of like, it was just don't have sex if you do wait till marriage or wear a condom, otherwise you're going to get an STI Or you're going to get somebody pregnant. Right. But there was no conversation about relationship management skills, how to ask for what you want, how to say no, how to identify abuse, how to look for help and more importantly, boundaries like that being omitted from sex education as a youth and me having just now at 30 years old, having learned the word and being uh, having to really self-educate and have my own experiences with boundaries and navigating them and having to find my own and understanding how to get people to discover their own and communicate with others so that I can honor their boundaries. That's been a huge journey, but it also translates very well into conversations about sex. And I think that changing the narrative around that between um, how we talk about sexual health and how we talk about mental health, looking at them as arguably the same, I think that it removes a lot of resistance from educators of youth in understanding how to talk to them about, uh, about sex because we're talking relationship management. We're talking about how to... Um, ask for help and support if you need it, how to say no and how to receive a no. So all of this stuff really plays a major role into it. And I can't tell you how many people that I've spoken to about abusive situations and after having experienced abuse, that's when they recognize the things that we should have been taught in our early sex education, especially around boundaries. So again, just going back to the part about me having been in this space and not really dealt with my own diagnosis. I think that in supporting other people and dealing with theirs as consistently as I have and learning from the people who are also in this space and offering some sort of peer support, I think that um, it's it has been very healing for me as well because I also ask myself, like, I don't know who gave me herpes. I don't know. As far as I know, no one that I've been sexually active with after my diagnosis has it. So I look at it as a way of Since I didn't have anyone to point the finger at and blame for my diagnosis, I really had to examine myself and decide, okay, well, I'm going to take accountability for this. And I'm very fortunate and privileged to be able to be open about my diagnosis and talk openly about my experiences and be able to put that on display for other people. Because as a black man, I didn't have anyone who could be that leader, that role model for me of how to navigate this space and the space of people who are open about their herpes status is it's predominantly white women, cisgendered white women. And so being able to step into this space and have received so much support from the people who are already here and the people who have come in later and just being that male figure or uh, the black male figure, whatever it is that people need to see, because I, I think that it helps when someone looks like you. Even that alone has helped me identify with my own like identification as a hero, so to speak, just being someone there that people who look like me or want my perspective, they, they have me there to reach out to.
0: I was just like, to everything you were saying, just like, yes, 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 especially about just sex education and how it is so much more or could be so much more than specifically about quote unquote sexual health. And I think that when people think about um, like a lot of people are resistant to the idea of teaching it earlier on, but mentioning the things that you did about Communication and boundaries, like those are lessons that need to be taught at age zero, right? Like from the time that you're born, learning about your own body, having autonomy over your body, being able to communicate if you don't want something, also being able to communicate if you do want something, receiving the no, like you said as well. I think a lot of us struggle with feeling rejected and how we handle rejection and then also identifying abuse and knowing what healthy relationships look like. Like we're not learning any of that. And I think that we're also placing the responsibility on educators who may be trained in many other topics, none of which are uh, comprehensive sex and relationship education, and then expecting them, uh, even if they had these lesson plans, to be able to, you know, field questions from students without having their own, not only education, but even their own healing. I think a lot of us naturally just respond in our with our own biases and with our own ideas and with the ways that we were socialized and how we grew up. And so a lot of educators are just responding, probably with a lot of their own. Ideas of things, you know, to even though they probably may try to be non judgmental, but a lot of that still do, can come across. And so, oh, there's such a revamp that's necessary, and also just as a society in general. And it was making me think, even what you about what you mentioned earlier with Christianity and suicide and the idea um, of, you know, that being. A straight path to hell. And I think that Christianity, I know that I grew up extremely you know, involved in um, our church and my school was religious. and that was definitely something that we were taught. And on top of that, it it weaves itself into sex ed as well, right? With like abstinence-based sex ed and fear-based sex ed where all you're learning about is pregnancy prevention, not even prevention, just that you shouldn't get pregnant. Uh, that you shouldn't be having sex. And then the, sort of consequences and a consequence being framed as, you know, this negative thing, which can be an STI. So that's obviously fueling a lot of that stigma um, when you're learning that this is like, this is the, this is what you get, right. For like having sex or for having unprotected sex. Uh, So I think it's just like, so problematic and there's so much room for better, better experiences, better education. Do you have a little bit of time after the hour? I know we started late. I'm super sorry.
1: Oh, yeah. This is what I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, amazing.
1: Yeah, anybody who wants to talk to me about this, like I will always make time for this because uh, there are aspects of it that don't get talked about. Like when we get into the mental health piece, I hear the stories, the interviews, and oftentimes when I see a podcast where it's like herpes, we're talking about herpes. You know, all that's talked about is just how stigmatized it is and then dating with herpes, and that's like the extent of it, but it goes so much deeper than that because – For instance, like if we look at dating with herpes, I mean, it's really just like dating. So why don't we talk about all those things that are omitted from sex education, right? Like boundaries, being able to identify abuse, being able to honor a no, say no, speak up for yourself, know what you want, ask for what you want, all of those aspects that go into dating. Let's talk about the mental health piece. Let's talk about how the mental, or I'm sorry, the um, medical community is the initial launch point for not only how a person discloses to a partner if they receive an STI, but if they disclose to a partner after having received um, a diagnosis for an STI. Those are the kinds of things that really don't get talked about and they need more attention. And so I'm always happy to bring that perspective, especially because like There's not a lot of recent data, especially about people who are living with herpes. And the data that there is, I think it just talks about HSV-2, transmission rates, if you're on antivirals, blah, blah, blah. I'll be honest, that is not my focal point at all. Because to me, what I see when I look at those statistics is there's always a risk. It's always a possibility that if you are someone who doesn't have herpes, you might have sex with someone who does have herpes and they may not know that they have it. Me being someone who has herpes, the best thing that I can do is give whoever it is that I would put at risk the choice. Like I'll give them the choice. I'll lead them to the information. But at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do to completely prevent another partner from getting herpes for me if we're sexually active with one another, uh, repeatedly. So being able to, you know, go beyond just those statistics and go into the community directly. And this, I mean, this is the resource, like talking to, I'm at almost 200 episodes. Now, if you include the bonus ones, I'm probably past 200 podcast episodes and interviews with people who are living with herpes and they're, is nothing more like these experiences that people are sharing. I wish that there was a way for me to just get like a spreadsheet and pie chart of the instances of abuse that led to their diagnosis or the mental health aspects that shifted for them after their diagnosis and all of the healing that's taken place as a result of their diagnosis being a launch pad and Exploration and self-discovery and learning the need for self-expression for themselves. It's just been that herpes for a lot of people has just been a launch pad into diving into their own identities and their mental health. Because after a diagnosis, like so much of our identities are interconnected with our sexuality that an SCI diagnosis will just come in and completely shatter our self image. And then we're left to piece the puzzle pieces back together. And in doing so, we see a lot of things that were always there that we don't like. So the force of having to put it back together is really what's building a lot of resilient people who go on to explore their healing and look for resources and try to go out there into the world and be supportive to other people because this is hard to do alone. I don't know that I could have, without having uh, the community behind me, the support that I've had and the conversations that I had, I don't think I could have put myself together in the way that I've been doing, at least not enough to carry myself as long as I have as a support resource for people who are navigating not just STI stigma, but who are also navigating perhaps suicide ideation or self harming tendencies or people who've attempted suicide, when people who, you know, like I said, that survey that i did 99% of that 110 people had experienced depression after their diagnosis so supporting people through the not only this uh traumatic event that sort of launches them into exploring and having to heal other traumas that may be slightly linked to their diagnosis but yeah just just it, it's a whole big like just melting pot of things that have to be talked about. If we're going to talk about herpes, like, I don't want to just let it be the focus of, all right, someone got a diagnosis. Here's how you date. Here's how you disclose. There's way more depth to it than that.
0: Yeah. 100%. I think, first of all, I have barely recorded 10 episodes. I can't even imagine 200. That's incredible. I'm just in awe. And that's, that's, um, aspirational for me. So, kudos to you on that. That's huge and amazing. Um, And I think you're so right. It's about all these different experiences. It's human experiences, right? Like there's so much more than than your herpes diagnosis, than any experience that you go through. You're still living life every day. And maybe, of course, an aspect of your identity or experience is informing some of the experiences that you're now having um, when you're also living with something else that makes you feel a certain way about yourself, right? Like obviously that's going to shape how you're interacting with people, shape your view of yourself and, and like you're saying, like kind of force you or give you the opportunity to reflect on all these other aspects of your experience and identity. So I think two things or a bunch of things were coming up for me as you were, as you were talking about that. What's up? Sorry.
1: Oh no, I was saying we have time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think just one thing, just a like a basic question and something I'm confused about is when you were mentioning just like the diagnosis itself, right? I remember going to get um, STI tested a few years ago. And I remember the nurse telling me that I didn't need to get a test for herpes because there was no point like that. If basically that it can show up or not show up, or I don't remember really what the reasoning was, but do you have an understanding around like why, why that is?
1: Yeah. So one of the more common reasons um, that doctors don't test for it to my understanding has been one because it's just so common like most people have it then two if there aren't any presented symptoms then you could produce a false positive or false negative and if someone gets a false positive test result that can lead to unnecessary mental health strain, right? Imagine being sitting in the doctor's office and then you're told you've got an incurable STI and then you later find out that you didn't. I actually interviewed someone who thought she had herpes for about 10 years, but she had just gotten a false positive at one point. I believe on the CDC site, they say that um, the reason that they don't test for herpes is that behavior has been demonstrated to not change. And I can directly attest to that not being the case because everyone that I've talked to has had some sort of behavior change. Even if you look at the survey that I've done, like there have been some sort of shifts in behavior that goes directly against that. I've spoken to someone who, um, she was assaulted and the most recent partner that she had, uh, her boyfriend who not who was not the the assaulter assailant there's a word that i'm not able to think of right now he uh,
0: perpetrator
1: she, perpetrator okay <laughs> any word anyway <laughs> but she asked for her uh the the Boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, she asked him to go and get tested. And he was like, okay, sure. You know, I'll go get tested, find out if I have it. So he goes into the doctor and he's like, hey, I might've been exposed to herpes. And his doctor just flat out told him, oh, you're fine, just wear condoms. If you don't have any symptoms, you're fine. Now, this is someone who says, hey, I I was exposed to herpes. And he goes into the doctor and receives that kind of dismissive, oh, you're good, whatever. So we've got this credible resource who is telling someone who just essentially said, Hey, I might have herpes. What do I do doc? And he's just like, just wear condoms. So now this person leaves and he's like, Oh, well, my doctor said, if I wear condoms, condom, I won't get herpes. That's basically what he's been told. And that's not how that works. Anyone who has now tested positive for herpes understands that you can still get herpes, wearing a condom, using uh, barriers. And the fact that it's a skin to skin contact virus, but what, I share that story for is because it just goes to show the resistance to testing, given the circumstances. Of course, that man who went in to see his doctor for a herpes test, like he didn't give any, he didn't give all the details, but he should have been able to just have gotten a test if he asked for one, right? But now we've got this woman who, you know, has tried to figure out, okay, well, it was one of two people who gave me herpes and she can't get closure uh, just from the resistance of the medical community as well. So yeah, though, that the reason just being that I don't think that doctors or um, healthcare practitioners really are given the resources that they need in order to, first off, deliver an accurate, consistent test result. And then B, be able to deal with the uh, mental health response or the emotional response from someone in the event that they do receive a positive diagnosis because the how healthcare works, it's very get in, treat the symptoms, get out and next person.
0: So, Given that herpes is so incredibly common and that it's not entirely preventable because like you mentioned, it um, can be transferred through skin to skin contact. What is the benefit or like, is it about con- informed consent? Is it about just knowing your body and your health? What is, what is the requirement and why, like, I guess, I know this sounds like a silly question, but what is what is the benefit in testing if we know that it's so common and it's so easy to transfer and even if you use condoms that you can't necessarily prevent it if you wanted to, and also that people have it and they don't know. Like what do you think is still the like responsibility to get tested?
1: So I would be probably a very major conspiracy theorist in saying this, but if you look at the history, we would say that I, I will argue that it's just to sell medication. I mean, to sell the treatment for herpes. The There's this podcast episode that I was even on, on this podcast, Will Kill You, where they talk about herpes and the history of the stigma and how it started. It's like chlamydia, gonorrhea, those got cures, right? So these are curable diseases. Um, infections I'm sorry these are curable infections and then herpes comes out herpes is harmless where uh, whereas like chlamydia and gonorrhea can affect infants and babies directly herpes is essentially just skin acne the virus lives in the nerves and so it's this uncomfortable it's a big joke in the media, nobody wants it, so you got the perfect environment for there to be a demand for a product that soothes people's discomfort around stigma and herpes so i would buy the medication that you take daily to reduce the risk of passing the virus on to partners and then as far as like testing goes if there's all this inconsistency and inaccuracy and in information people can't get on the same page about hey just take care of your body uh, get tested know your status know your partner's status and if you do have herpes disclose the partners and then you know if everyone knows your status and everyone discloses if we don't have accurate information I think that that still sets us up for people who don't know their status or think they don't have herpes or don't have herpes to go whoa I don't want that so I'm just not going to have sex with you I'm only going to have sex with people who don't have herpes or who know they don't have herpes so I get, I think that like a combination of consistent, accurate, transparent, trustworthy information would essentially put us on the same page about. Uh, just how tricky of a virus herpes is. And there would be so much acceptance generally from the public, not just within the community of people who have it, but also those who don't, that there wouldn't be a need to purchase the medication. There'd be no need to buy Valtex. There's also all these different um, ways that people are going about treating it. Um, When I first got diagnosed and I had my first outbreaks, heck yes, I took the medication. But once I looked up ways to manage the virus, manage outbreaks, it was a matter of taking care of your physical health, exercising, movement, uh, managing your stress, uh, reading, yoga, and then just nutrition, being mindful of what foods may trigger an outbreak. How do we uh, the the kind of stress that you put on your body and on your mind and on your uh, digestive system. Like these are things that influence whether or not you have an outbreak, keep your immune system up and you'll be fine. So at that point, sales go down for Valtrex. And I honestly believe that that's why we don't have one accurate, consistent test. That's why we're not really prioritizing um, a need for something like that. And we're not prioritizing a cure or better uh, medication for treatment of herpes is because this essentially uncomfortable virus that doesn't necessarily—it's it, not fatal um, in all cases, I will say—and there maybe there are a few like if someone's already immune compromised. I know people who are afraid of getting herpes because of other health complications. So in those with those as outliers, herpes is typically harmless, and it's really the stigma that's associated with it that drives the sale of the medication. And so I think that that's why we're just not on the same page about the fact that this is just a tricky virus and that so many people have it and don't know it and don't have complications that it's just, it's not even worth looking into.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a lot of money to be made from um, capitalizing on people's insecurities and fears, right? I think what you mentioned about doctors not having the tools necessarily, the communication tools or the mental health responsiveness to talk to patients who have a diagnosis is really interesting. And I think, can you talk a little bit just about like, what does a typical diagnosis experience look like? And then on the flip side of that, like, what could it look like? What would be a better ideal Um, diagnosis experience be, in your opinion, based on the conversations that you've had and also your own experience?
1: I appreciate that question so much. The experience that I had when I was diagnosed, I went in, doctor looked, I got treated for chlamydia and gonorrhea just in case I had those. But when he looked at the lesion on my penis, he just went, that's herpes. We'll confirm it. And um, here's a medication. Here's a pamphlet. And that was it sent on my way. I didn't sit in there and cry. I didn't need the emotional support really at that time, but also didn't know what I needed. That pamphlet was useless to me because it said, uh, I remember there were three different statistics. It said, uh, it, I think it started with one in six. And I remember the numbers went down. One in six people have uh, genital HSV2. One in five people have oral herpes or genital HSV1 one in four people had herpes and then it was like one in three get cold sores. It was something like that. And the language was so confusing and the percentages were there and they were high, but it didn't matter to me because nobody I knew had herpes. So what relevance is it that all these people have it and I feel like I'm the only one in my immediate circle at the very least who does have it. So that was useless to me. So when I left, I went and did my own self-research and I found about stress management, nutrition, and uh, physical fitness. These were things that you do to manage the symptoms. I think that that was probably the more important thing that I needed at the time, but also needed to know how to ask a partner, hey, did you give me herpes? I needed to know how to tell partners, hey, this is what I have. I'm dealing with this. I needed to know how to disclose my status to partners is what I was trying to say there. The way that I think it can be better is some people want the direct approach. They just want to get in, get out, and then go deal with it on their own. Some people are going to want to cry and be hugged and told that everything's going to be okay. Some people are going to want the facts. Some people are going to want to know how they're going to navigate a particular thing moving forward. I think that healthcare providers can do no wrong in after the delivery of a diagnosis, just asking the person, what do they need? What do you think that you need? How can I be of support? I mean, and I understand that that's not the purpose of the doctor. They're there to diagnose and subscribe or diagnose and then uh, prescribe. I don't know why I said subscribe, (laughs) but that's their... Like,
0: follow, and subscribe. No, I'm
1: kidding. (laughs) But that's their that's their role, like they're not equipped to sit in there for an extra hour and a half consoling someone and just saying it's going to be okay, whatever. But they can be equipped with the tools to if a person knows what they need right then and there, maybe it's just how am I going to tell my partner? Then be given, you know, episode 99 of Something Positive for Positive People on disclosure. Or maybe that person is just going to need to know that there is a community of supportive people out there and they can be given one of the Instagram accounts or Facebook pages. But I think that just like how we need options after our diagnosis, I think that the healthcare providers just need options for giving people what it is that they need. But it really just begins with making the ask, being comfortable enough to ask, what do you think you need? What do you need so that I know in my range of uh, in my tool belt, I can give you a card to something positive for positive people. So maybe you need therapy. I can give you uh, this Instagram page. So maybe you can get more information or you can meet up with support groups. That's really what it comes down to is just being able to ask people, hey, what do you need? And with that communication, I think that people more people more often than not, people are probably not going to know what they need. But. The provider is going to be prepared with something to give them. And I think we can just make a simple human call and be like, okay, well, if I was diagnosed, I think what I would want right now most is this. If someone responds that they don't know what they need and you can just offer that. So being able to just inform them, hey, someone's diagnosed with an STI, bam, here's what you can do for them. But start with just asking that simple question and just asking may even be enough.
0: I think that's so true because you make a great point in that a lot of people, because I'm thinking, you know, yeah, in that moment, do you even know what you need? Do you even know how you're going to feel an hour later, five minutes later, once you leave the office? But I think asking the question also just opens up the conversation, lets them know that maybe they could follow up if they did need more resources. Like, hey, you mentioned maybe I might need something. Do you have more resources? Or if people aren't going to follow up, which many people probably wouldn't, at least knowing like, hey, it seems like my doctor said, what do you need? Now it puts the question on you, right? So afterward you might think, what do I need? And then maybe pursue for yourself those resources. Um, and especially if the doctor has a range of options for you, if you maybe didn't have an answer, they can say, okay, well, if this is coming up for you, or if this comes up for you, here's where you can go. And I think that would be amazing. And I hope, and I'm sure I hope that some doctors are, are doing that. I think one thing I wanted to touch on is just something you brought up about sort of trailing back into how did I get herpes, right? Like who gave me herpes, knowing where you came into contact, how you were exposed, Um, and you even mentioned earlier the word blame. So what is, it seems that maybe that is a path for a lot of people of trying to understand like, where did this come from? How did I get this? How did I end up in this position? but i'm also thinking that i could see how that could be harmful although potentially providing closure like you mentioned but also potentially even further stigmatizing right because it's like if it's not this negative thing is there blame to be placed so do you have any thoughts around that and kind of just the experience of wanting to know how this happened and what that what people are looking for with that
1: Emily, the past, I think, said it best. Sometimes we don't need closure. We just need peace. I think that people are seeking peace from their diagnosis or perhaps they're looking to avoid whatever feelings come up as a result of the diagnosis. I feel like you no, know, there's probably a million other things that people can seek other than just uh, peace or avoidance. But in my experience, it's been a lot of one of those two things, because if you can blame it on someone, then you can say, well, it's their fault. They did this to me. And there's no real need for healing, really, or there's no incentive to heal yourself and whatever wound was created by this person or that may have already been in place and just herpes now has come to the surface and you've got someone that you can point the finger at for having caused this for you. Whereas on the other side of that, you know, being able to come to terms with it and get peace. I actually reached out to my ex-girlfriend that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode because uh, shortly after our um, weekend together, we had had sex. I didn't think about this until very recently. I was actually in the shower and I thought, whoa, what if she gave me herpes? And that was the reason that she tried to kill herself because she had it and didn't think anyone would want her. I reconnected with her very recently. And we talked a little bit. And I just asked her, I was like, hey, you know, did I end up giving you herpes? Because I let her know what I was doing now. It had been years since she and I had talked. And um, we talked a little bit about her suicide attempt. Um, She actually brought it up, which I was so thankful for, because I didn't know how to bring that conversation up. And I just kind of told her, thank you. I was like, thank you for, I want you to know that you've inspired something Uh, a very important part of what it is that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, you know, I thank her for just, you know, continuing to be here. And she let me know, she's like, you know, wow, that means a lot. And uh, no, I don't have herpes. So not only did I get like this, this closure on, I'm okay, not knowing where I got herpes from, but there was also something else that was there that I didn't know that I needed, which was just to tell her. How significant she was or is in um, the creation, development, and the driving force of something positive for positive people, which is suicide prevention, right? So, in me being able to pursue closure, I got peace for something that had absolutely nothing to do with herpes. And that is a very beautiful symbolism there or metaphor, it it very much parallels how we deal with herpes. So I went back for closure for herpes and I got peace with something completely unrelated. I think a lot of us can do that if we're willing to step into and explore, all right, well, what does this mean? This hurts me emotionally. Lean into those uncomfortable emotions and lean into the discomfort And then that's when we can feel what it is that's going on, name it, and then seek support for it, seek to find meaning for it. That's what I think a lot of us, um, I think that's what a lot of us are actually looking for. And we can just avoid it and eventually come across it, or we can lean into it and go on the journey of self-discovery for what that means for us.
0: I think that's amazing. And it's great that you were able to have that conversation. I think this brings us pretty much full circle. And to the last thing that I want to talk about, which is support, how people can be supportive, be a supportive partner, be a supportive person on the other end of maybe a casual hookup. If someone says, I want to talk to you about STI statuses, I want to talk to you about my herpes. um, And even friends, if you say, "You know, hey, I just got a diagnosis and I'm scared or I feel, you know, horrible or I, you know, oh my gosh, how am I going to date? And I'm sure, of course, that the extension of support could be, you know, extrapolated into other categories, right? How can we support anyone when they tell us something that's, that's hurting them or that's hard for them? But I think with, with this topic, like, how can you, how do you recommend people to receive this information and, and then be a supportive person on the other side of it?
1: I think that after a diagnosis, we tend to viralize ourselves when we need to really just remember the human who we were the one second before we receive the news that we're positive for herpes is the same exact person. We just now have this mind shift That opens the floodgates of whatever stigma was already implanted in us. So whatever it was that we thought about herpes, whatever it was we thought about an STI before we got one, we've now associated ourselves with that so much that we've lost our humanity. So in viralizing ourselves, we kind of lose our humanity. And all we need is for someone to remind us of that. Who we were that split second before we received the confirmation that we had herpes, right? Or before that suspicion began, we're that same person. And oftentimes it just takes for someone to hold space for us and for us to be brave enough to seek out our own humanity reflected back to us. So if we have solid support systems around us, we have good friendships and people that we can connect with and talk to about something as vulnerable as and a change in sti status right then we begin to revisit our humanity and we viralize ourselves a lot less so the more humanness we're able to get from people the more affirmation that we're able to get that we are still who we were that split second before our diagnosis was confirmed the quicker we're going to be able to recover from this and accept ourselves in all of our humanness and recognize that this virus is just something that happened. We have the virus. It's not that we are the virus. And early on, if you don't get affirmation for your identity, your identities, who you are, then you can really lose yourself in that thought process. So it's important to just remember who you were, remember who you are. And it doesn't take much, but to be reminded of that by people who know you people who know you beyond how you look beyond how you sound but like how your identity reflects how they've experienced you how you experience them and how you experience yourself these aspects of ourselves just need to be validated again and again and again until it's drilled in our heads that this is who we are we've been identifying with the wrong things if um our diagnosis is able to completely strip us away from the human that we have been.
0: And then you mentioned how many people do experience suicidal ideation or just like depression after a diagnosis. So if you have shared with maybe family or a friend that you've had this diagnosis, do you think that family and friends should check in and follow up to say like, because obviously a lot of people can't, talk about how they're feeling, right? They don't want to talk about how they're feeling, or they're afraid to share how they're feeling, especially with loved ones, because it's a scary place. Do you think that people should check in and say, like, how are you feeling after the diagnosis based on the, what we know about how people feel? Or do you, uh, or how can people do that in a way where you're, where you're not trying to make the person think something's wrong with them? Because maybe if it's like, maybe they have come to terms with it, or they're not seeing it as such a big deal. And then people are constantly like, are you okay? Are you okay? Or like, how are you? How can people check in and make sure that their loved one is okay without maybe further stigmatizing them or making them feel like something is should be wrong with them?
1: Yeah, yeah. I like how you said that, making people feel like something should be wrong with them. I think it goes back to the humanness thing. If we're a loved one, if someone close to you, has told you that they have herpes. I'm sure at some point they've shared how they feel or where they are with it. You can just, the next time that you talk or check in, just ask, Hey, are you still at this place? And you can learn from them what direction it is that they're going, maybe based on their response, maybe based on the consistency of their behavior and your interactions. So checking in can just be a matter of Hey, let's go do that human thing that we've always done prior to your diagnosis. And in that interaction of playing basketball together or watching a movie, playing video games, getting food, you can kind of tell, you know, where they are. If they're like poking at their fork or just not present, then maybe that's a good time to bring them back to the present and just check in, like, hey, how, how are you? What's going on? You know, you're looking down and maybe they'll tell you what's wrong. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't want to talk about it. But whatever it is that they offer you, just respect that. So if they don't want to talk about it, let it go move on to something else if they do want to talk about it please be ready to listen I can't tell you how often people ask you know how are you and then when someone starts talking you kind of just check out or leave them on read or something like that but yeah it checking in is simply just checking in how would you want someone to check in on you you know you can ask yourself that um, and then really be able to go from there but the at the end of it all like just see the human don't Treated like, hey, oh my God, you have herpes. That's the worst thing in the world. Like, you're not okay. I know you're not. I wouldn't be okay. So yeah, just see the human and respond to the human and talk to the human.
0: I love that. And I think just in general, I think that's great advice for just navigating mental health conversations or just conversations, period, right? It's like listening to what the other person's really saying, taking in what they're saying and and being responsive as someone that cares about them and wants to wants to be there for them and whatever that looks like. So I can't thank you enough for this conversation. This has definitely been eye opening for me. And, and thank you just so much for all of the work that you do. Can you share where people can find you? You already mentioned, obviously, but if you want to just share it again.
1: Yes, so you can visit www.spfpp.org, and that's the acronym for something positive for positive people. And there's where you will be able to find our resources. We are raising money to basically pay for people's therapy if they have herpes. So if you're someone who has herpes and this is something that is bothering you or you're struggling with stigma, even if you're not struggling with stigma, like I'm getting the money. If you just tell me you have herpes and need a therapist, then (laughs) I can begin the process of connecting you. Um, There's group therapy as well. If you want to donate to our cause, like your money is essentially just paying for people to get therapy and whatever bills we have in order to continue to operate as a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, There's a lot more to it. I am also putting together modern information like I'm putting surveys together so that we can get 2021 data from our community directly, um, given the podcast, the social media accounts. There's a lot of people who have herpes who are in this community that I now have access to. So we can get some data that reflects now directly from the community. Now, obviously I can't get like transmission <laughs> rates exactly or anything, but just some useful information that people will be able to share with partners and disclosures and all of that. And i link to other people who who are in the education space for having conversations around STIs and herpes education um, so there's a lot of stuff there if you want to go to the website and check that out I can be found on social media at H on my chest I am most active on Instagram if you want you can follow me there or reach out to me I'm accessible and I try to um, communicate with anyone who reaches out uh yeah i think that that's really it i mean your support really helps us in making the effort to integrate our post sti diagnosis support resources with std prevention resources and let the world know that sexual health is in fact mental health and how we don't talk about sex is how we really need to start talking about it and that goes along with um the way that we're talking about mental health now, given COVID and um, the way that the conversations are now being brought to light in the public space and in the media. So, um, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're just out here trying to get people connected to mental health resources.
0: It's amazing. I wanted, I was actually thinking about that and I was like, I wonder if um, just the COVID and getting tested for COVID and safe practices around COVID and also just the fact that so many people obviously did have COVID if that has translated into um like if that's had any influence on STIs and kind of conversations around STIs and just the normalization I guess of contracting an infection I don't know if that there's if it's been any if it's had any impact or if people totally don't think about them the same way at all.
1: So like even in and some jokes, some dating or whatever, it's, oh, you don't have COVID, do you know, but I got herpes. Oh, that's fine. Like, that's kind of a popular joke right now. But if you look at how we talk about COVID and how we talk about STIs, you know, we say wear a condom, you know, wear a mask. We say stay six feet apart. We say be careful with the number of sexual partners you have or with social distancing. I mean, be careful about who you're around talk about testing talk about your people that you're around and it's the same thing with sex all right well do you have a lot of sexual partners are you wearing protection around those partners going back to are you wearing masks and then i think that the worst part has been um i've seen and talked to people who are diagnosed with covid and it's the same thing as being diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection herpes being the virus that it is covid being a virus like Navigating the conversation and having to go back and tell people, hey, I might've exposed you to COVID. It's the same kind of reaction that one has after saying, hey, I might've given you herpes. But there's just like, there's more of an urgency for COVID, obviously, because this causes, this, this can be fatal than there is herpes. With herpes, there's just so much more shame. But even with COVID, there's still kind of this shame piece of, I wasn't as careful as I should have been. I was told to stay six feet away. Maybe it was at one time that I just, I got too close to somebody or I took the mask off, you know, being like, oh, I took the condom off or the condom broke. So these conversations parallel so well. And then having to go through the process of getting tested and diagnosed. Only thing is with COVID, I mean, you had to take two, maybe three weeks off work. And with herpes, you could at least go to work the next day, right? (laughs) But yeah, I think that the conversation is, uh, it's at least shifted to the point where now we ask people the questions that are relevant to COVID And I think that it makes it a lot easier for us to ask these same questions in relation to sex. However, you know, looking on the opposite end of that... You would think that with the urgency of COVID, with its prevalence of people needing to limit their interactions with others, if you're going to be intimate with someone, I think that there may be this assumption that, oh, you've been careful, I've been careful, so we don't have to be as careful with one another because we're we're this close because so much of the quality of the interaction is placed upon sex. So you may feel safer being intimate with someone than you are being socially distant from other people. So, and I think that that may even have um, a little bit of, that may play a role in the STI rates increasing over the period of COVID. But that's just a speculation. I don't have any evidence backing this. I just talk to people who are diagnosed with herpes for the most part. And um, when I get to talking about this kind of stuff, they go, oh my God, I think and then we have these kind of epiphanies. So I don't want to say too much and make people think I'm crazy. <laughs> <out of> here.
0: <laughs> I'm always conspiring out here. I, I love a good conspiracy theory. No, but I don't even think that's a conspiracy theory. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much again. And uh, I, look forward, I look forward to this episode coming out.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in. And hey, what are you going to ask for yourself this week? Head to our Instagram at askingformyself. That's with the number four, and/or talk taboo to share what you've learned and what questions you have. Catch you next time.